What do you think is our culture's greatest problem? If you're a cat person, you think it's dogs. If you're a dog person, you think it's cats. You might say it is Donald Trump or Nancy Pelosi, depending on which aisle side of the aisle you sit on. You might say it is night baseball or the designated hitter if you're a baseball traditionalist. But seriously, what do you think it is? Some might say poverty. Others might say climate control. Still others may say the loss of traditional values. A lot of people would say that race issues and prejudice is our biggest challenge. And I think there's a strong case for that. But I don't think race is our biggest problem. I don't think prejudice, I think, rather, that prejudice, hatred, and issues with race are symptoms of something deeper. I think, and I believe the Bible teaches, that our greatest, single greatest problem is actually human pride. What is pride? I'm not talking here about a healthy pride. I think there is such a thing as a healthy pride. But there is a human pride that damages and divides and destroys. And the Bible talks a lot about that kind of pride. Look at just one verse that represents a very consistent theme in Scripture. Psalm 101, verse 5. The writer said, Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. A haughty look is a lofty look. It's a look that's filled with contempt. And the sub-narrative is that I am better than you. I am superior to you. Pride is always in relation to others. It is a comparison. It is a competition. It is a weighing of oneself over others. C.S. Lewis wrote a great essay on pride. He offers this insight. We say that people are proud of being rich, clever, or good-looking. But they are not. They are proud of being richer, or cleverer, or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich, or clever, or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride has gone. For me, I am so naturally competitive. I hate losing in everything. Some of that fire is good. Some of it is a push for excellence and a desire not to waste what God has given me. But there's also a dark side. There is a competitive fire that can disorient the affections of the heart making us love the wrong things. And when you love the wrong things, the result is always chaos. And you know what else? When pride is bent the wrong way, it plants the seeds of prejudice and hatred. When pride is bent the wrong way, good things like love of country can turn to a belief that we are inherently superior to others. Or when pride is bent the wrong way, good things like the love of family or the love of neighborhood or the love of the familiar can turn into racial pride and racism. Prejudice is not limited, though, to race. 
There is class differences. There are the kind of people. There is the age of people. I bet that all of us are inclined to look down on some kind of person. Someone you feel superior towards. I know it exists in my heart. And I'm going to bet that most of you struggle with it in some capacity. The next section on our journey through the book of Acts speaks to this very thing. It reveals how kingdom growth is tied to our attitudes. And it teaches the powerful role of the Holy Spirit in shaping our beliefs and our attitudes. Turn to Acts chapter 10, if you would. It's page 918. In chapters 10 and 11 represent a massive shift in our story. God's kingdom is on the verge of venturing outside the boundaries that have defined it for several thousand centuries. But before that can happen, God must perform some open-heart surgery. On the operating table are two men. One is a reluctant apostle. The other, a man with a sterling moral resume. One will have a dream. The other, a vision. One is Jewish. The other, a Roman. One is a man of peace. The other, a man of war. One understands the mystery of life. The other is seeking it. Their intersection and what happens will impact all of history. And not just church history. I want to tell the stories of these two men. I want to ask the question, how has it changed history? Their meeting And then finally, how does it change us? Okay, why don't you stand and read. I'm going to read here in Acts chapter 10, from beginning at verse 1, all the way through verse 23. Okay, here we go. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius? And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord. For I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once to heaven. 
Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you were looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, remove any barrier we might have in our hearts to hear exactly what we need to hear today from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Okay, so we've got two different men, Peter and Cornelius. God arranges a meeting between the two. And so, shaken up by this vision, Peter returns with Cornelius, with the messengers, back to his home. Let's pick up the story in verse 27. And as he, Peter, talked with him, Cornelius, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know, this is how he began, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. Stop right there. Peter begins his talk with why this meeting is so rare and why it is so dangerous to his reputation. He identified the barriers now centuries old. Jews were not to associate with non-Jews. It was taboo. It was even seen as indecent to go into the home of a Gentile and eat together. One commentator explained the origins of this attitude. The concern was that a Jewish person would become unclean during the visit with a Gentile who had contact with unclean food and other types of uncleanness. Such contact was not allowed. A degree of separation for the Jews had been part of God's plan for this period of redemptive history. The separation of Jews from Gentiles was intended to help the Jews not lose their identity, to not be assimilated into the wider culture, to not adopt the practices of the surrounding nations, and to not lose their way of worship. All of this was to ready the soil for the coming Messiah. But it was never God's plan, however, that Gentiles could not be saved. Never. And there are some really cool stories in the Old Testament that illustrate that, like the story of Rahab. But generally speaking, for a Gentile to be saved in a formal way, they had to become a Jew first. Now we know without a doubt from the literature of this period that this separation 
became a source of ethnic and national pride. Jews came to see themselves, this was not what God intended, Jews came to see themselves as inherently superior to non-Jews because of their religion and ethnicity. They took pride in their relation to God as a chosen people, forgetting their humble origins, viewing themselves with an air of exclusivity. By the time Jesus arrived, Jews despised Gentiles. They no longer separated for the purpose of holiness, but because of hatred and utter contempt. Pride always turns to prejudice. And let me show you how deep this hatred ran. Just turn a few pages to Acts chapter 22. Do you remember last week we told the story of Paul's conversion? Here, Paul retells that story. And what has happened is a crowd, a massive crowd, has gathered uh, in Jerusalem by the temple. And scholars suggest that in this crowd were very likely uh, Christians, Jewish Christians, who were, you know, part of that group we met way back in Acts chapter 2. So in verse 21, Paul comes to an important part of the story, how Jesus called him into service. Here's what Paul said, verse 21. And he, Jesus, said to me, Paul, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul said, I'm going to take the kingdom of God to these Gentiles. Well, that was the end of the message. Look at what happens next. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered Paul to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. In other words, they were going to kill Paul. And the Roman soldiers saved his life. But this is a great illustration of the contemporary mindset of Jews towards Gentiles. The message, the kingdom, the scriptures were exclusively theirs. So back to Peter. How much prejudice does Peter hold towards the Gentiles? Well, we're not totally certain, but there are hints of prejudice in this passage. His coolness towards Cornelius. The stiffness of his welcome to the messengers that came to his home. And if that isn't evidence enough, we can go back to the Gospels and unpack his attitude and mentality towards the Syrian woman or towards the Samaritan woman, where it was plain that Peter and all the disciples, where their prejudice was quite plain. What we know with certainty is that Peter assumed anyone becoming a Christian must become a Jew first. Peter was a Christian, but here he still fought as a Jew, the old wineskin. Membership in this club runs through the door of Judaism. Now, if you just peek ahead to chapter 11, verse 3, you'll see that after the encounter with Cornelius, Peter would need to explain exactly what he was doing in the home of a Gentile. These early believers here are described as the circumcised 
believers. Jewish Christians, this group actually comprises the vast majority of believers at this point. These believers criticized Peter, and they were deeply disturbed by his actions. So go back to verse 28, where we jumped off in chapter 10. Go back to verse 28, and look at the rest of the verse, because there is something astir in Peter's heart. Here's what he says. But God has shown me that I should not call any person impure, common, or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked him why you sent for me. Ah, now did you see what happened here? Did you see this? Peter interpreted the meaning of the vision. It was not about unclean food, but about unclean people. And what God says is there is no such thing. There's no such thing as unclean people in the sense that no person is excluded from the possibility of receiving God's kingdom and forgiveness. Three times the voice in the dream said to Peter, do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times God hammered it home. Peter's got a thing with like the number three. The dream prepared Peter for this moment. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, God has been doing some open heart surgery on Peter for quite some time. Look back at chapter 8, verse 17. What's going on here? Well, Mike talked about it a few weeks ago. Philip had gone into Samaria where he preached Jesus without discrimination. The Samaritans were half-Jews. They were long-time despised enemies. And so when this happened, it made the apostles back in Jerusalem sort of scratch their heads and wonder, so were they too being invited into Christ's kingdom? So they sent Peter and John to investigate. And what they discovered likely surprised them. They had responded to the message, and Peter and John affirmed their faith in Jesus, prayed for them, and they received the Holy Spirit. The coming, the Spirit coming to the Samaritans was evidence to Peter and John that, yes, God was in this. Secondly, look at the end of chapter 9. This is very interesting. We're told there that Peter stayed in the, the home of a man named Simon, whose trade was a tanner. Why is that significant? Because a tanner sells leather. And to sell leather, you have to have what? You have to have dead animals. And to have dead animals, you have to have animal carcasses, which in Jewish thinking, anyone touching them was unclean. This was filthy, stench-filled work done only by the lower socioeconomic classes By Peter staying with this man, we can begin to detect movement in Peter's heart. Peter's defenses, I think, even before the dream, were beginning to break down. Think about it for a moment. What exactly is beginning to sink into Peter's heart? Could he actually preach Christ, offering him freely, without 
anyone going through the law? Would Christ's death be totally sufficient for a person to have all their offenses toward God and all their offenses towards others washed away? Did the resurrection of Jesus truly put an exclamation point on this? I wonder if you can appreciate the gravity of this moment. I'll come back to that question, but for now, let's pick up Cornelius' side. Look at verse 30. And Cornelius said, Four days ago, Peter, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I have sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now therefore we are all here in the presence of God, to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Oh man, what a heart. Do you see how hungry and eager Cornelius is? Listen, friends, he is what we would want every member of our church to be. And his devotion may be a rebuke to some of you. He's committed to prayer. He uses his money to help the poor. He's eager to hear the word of God. And he includes others. But, one little little comma though here. The angel did not say to Cornelius, Cornelius, God has heard your prayers. Therefore, you guys are good. Cornelius says, God has heard your prayers, therefore you have the keys of the kingdom. You've done enough. You are acceptable based on your sterling resume. No. The angel said to Cornelius, send for Peter. Cornelius needed to hear the message for the completion of God's work in his life. God prepared his heart to hear it, just as God prepared Peter's heart to give it. And their stories collide head on as the truth of God intersects with a receptive heart. Look at verse 34. Peter begins to reveal now this discovery, the self-discovery he's on. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality or favoritism But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. The NIV says, I now realize how true it is. Peter has seen through. Think of how significant this is. Think of how many times Luke wants us to know this is the role of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking. He's guiding Peter has seen through the national pride, the exclusive mindset that has restrained the work of God around one agenda, one nation, and one people group. The work of God, the plan of God, is so much bigger and expansive than he had ever imagined. Peter's prejudices, his ethnic racism, was evaporating because of the grace of God. Peter, in saying that God accepts everyone, has recognized a tremendous truth. And that's this. That all humanity shares in the common thread of race. The common thread of Adam. We are all truly one race. 
impurity and uncleanness is not in a dirty cup or a dead carcass or the backside of a pig. It is in the human heart. And because of that common thread, because of our common humanity, no one has a leg up to say, I am inherently better or superior. Truly, all feelings of superiority or contempt should melt before the cross. All sense of differences where we build our identity and superiority on, whether they be racial, national, or ethnic, they should all erode under the common curse of a sinful man beneath a holy God. The gospel ties us together as one race under Adam. We are all equally in the need of a Savior. This is what Peter the mind-blowing, mind-expanding realization he's coming to. That's going to change the course of history. Beginning in verse 35, Peter goes on next to share what I believe to be one of the best summaries or the best distillations of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. He talks about the person of Jesus, his identity, his baptism, his anointing, his miraculous works, his death, his resurrection, including the fact that we were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus' body. Peter even said we ate and drank with Jesus in his resurrected body. Why did he include this? I suspect that there were already objections to the resurrection, and Peter seeks to answer them. Ghosts don't eat and drink. Hallucinations don't eat and drink. And then Peter concludes this presentation with verse 43. Amazing statement. Peter says, To him, Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes, notice, not believes and circumcised, believes and keeps the law, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Forgiveness purification, wholeness, perfection. That's the aim. They don't all get there. That's the aim of every religion. And Peter now says without reservation that forgiveness does not come through circumcision or ritual cleansing or preventing anything unclean from touching you. The prophets here, they make up a very significant part of the Old Testament. The Jewish scriptures, Peter is saying, these prophets looked into the future and they saw Jesus. They saw the Messiah. Look at what happens then when Peter, having given that invitation, look at what happens next. It's amazing. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Peter wasn't. I think he knew. He he was not surprised this time. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speak in tongues and extolling or worshiping God. Cornelius and his friends were ready and they believed and they received the Holy Spirit. And look at what they did. They worshiped and they spoke in tongues. Now, let's talk first about what it means to worship. That's the easier of these two. 
What does it mean that they worshipped? Cornelius and the others recognized God was the most worthy, lovable, and beautiful being in the universe. They recognize his ultimate worth. How do I know this? Because Peter had proclaimed that Jesus was Lord of all. This is what Lord of all means. In worship, we acknowledge that. And can I say that the same thing happens today when we worship? That the Holy Spirit comes when we worship? Not that we are baptized again in the Spirit. That's a one-time event. But the key to being filled with the Spirit, the key to us corporately experiencing the presence of God in our midst, is this kind of worship. Seeing His ultimate worth. Giving Him first place in everything. Now, as for speaking in tongues, this is very significant. But maybe not for the reason you think. Tongues is undoubtedly a strange phenomena, and for the whole history of the church has been a source of controversy. I'm not sure what you imagine when you picture the gift of tongues. The gift indeed has been abused because its purpose has often been misguided, but in my opinion, right here, I I believe the purpose is quite clear. You recall back in Acts chapter 2, at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit first came and filled the believers, do you remember that? Would have been maybe our first or second message. They were Jewish believers, and they spoke in tongues, in languages they did not know. However, the Jews that were visiting Jerusalem from all over the known world at Pentecost, they understood what they were saying. They understood they were worshiping God. They could understand. And it helped spur a great revival in the birth of the church. The tongues, along with the worship, was part of the evidence, in this case, that the Holy Spirit had come. This is how God worked initially to establish His church. Now what happens here in Acts 2, it was a Pentecost for, the, for Jewish believers. But what many have said here, this is a Pentecost for the Gentiles. And tongues has tremendous social implications. The different languages, I believe, represent here that the gospel was for every language. And for every culture, that all cultures were equal before God, and no one culture had a basis for feeling superior over another, and that every culture can receive the gospel, and that the gospel of Jesus Christ is not tied specifically to one culture, but can flow into and be recreated into every culture. So I think that the fact that they spoke in tongues there has tremendous implications for our understanding of who we are and the role of the gospel in our world. So, that concludes the story of Peter and Cornelius. We don't know what happens to Cornelius. We don't see him again. In chapter 11, I already told you how Peter went back to wary leaders. But it's so cool that those leaders were willing to allow the evidence to expand their vision of God. And in verse 18, those leaders affirm what Peter and John reported to them about the gospel coming here. 
New wineskins are emerging. Age-old prejudices are falling away. And the kingdom is able to move outward into the world. So that's the story of these two guys. I want to come back to this question now. I asked you earlier, how does this change the world? How did it change the world? And can you see the gravity of this moment? Can you see how this moment changed history? If Peter and the apostles had demanded that Cornelius and others become Jews first, the Christian faith would have become nothing more than an offshoot of Judaism. Over time, it would have simply become a subcategory in a religion book under Judaism. Jesus would be perceived today as a Jewish prophet and a good teacher, a holy person who died an unfortunate death. If this had been the course of history, you and me would not be sitting here today. But that was not what Peter, nor the apostles, nor the early church believed. Their real life experience with Jesus had proved otherwise. Thus, they came to see that the answer to the question, was Christ's death sufficient on its own for everyone? They answered that question with a victorious yes. Yes, anyone who believes can come to Christ, be made pure before God like crystal clear water. And that's history that changed everything. So, finally, the last thing, how does this question intersect with you and me? How does it actually change me today? Well, God had to work on Peter's heart, I think, over time. All throughout this, we see the leading and the voice of the Spirit taking Peter to a different place, uprooting hatred, perhaps, surely uprooting prejudice in his heart. Does God need to work on your heart as well? Are there prejudices? Are there hatreds? Is there a feeling of superiority? It might be a race. It might be a class. It might be a kind of person. Is there any race or class or kind of person that you are not willing to reach out to or for us as a church to reach out to because you see yourself as inherently superior? This is pride. And this is prejudice. And it is a great sin. It offends God. It is contrary to the gospel. And it hinders the growth of the kingdom. Change in our hearts again begins with worship. When we begin to land our identity and our ultimate value in God. See, let me make this statement. This is why prejudice, this is why I believe only the gospel can solve the issues of race and prejudice here. Whenever we land our identity and our worth in something other than God, we will always despise those lacking. If we draw our worth from being well-educated, we will despise those poorly educated. If we draw our worth from living in the right neighborhoods, we will despise those from the wrong neighborhoods. If we draw our worth from strength and beauty, we will despise the weak and the unlovely. God 
You know, the, 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 the greatest enemy the church had in the early days was not Rome. It was not Nero. It was not the ego-driven Caesars. The greatest enemy, the greatest thing that would have prevented the church from fulfilling its potential was not Rome. It was this. It was the human heart. But Peter and the others were willing to allow God to see differently. Practically, here's what I want to ask you to do this year. I want to ask you to reach out to the other this year. It's not the first time I've mentioned this. But I want to ask you to reach out to that other. That person that maybe that class, race, kind of person that is other to you. Have them in your home for a meal. Or attend an event that on their turf that will help expand your understanding of their story and their world. Read a book that tells their story. Last Sunday night, we had a, Louise and I had a family into our home from an inner city church. A, a leader in that church, his, he and his wife's world is much different than ours. We shared together nearly four hours together, learning our stories, appreciating our background, rejoicing in the things that we share in common, as well as seeing the ways that we're different and celebrating those. Can I just tell you that those times are so rich. They are so amazing. They are so filling. It is like a treasure. You know, because of your support over many years, I have been in the homes of people in many different countries. I've talked about Jesus and broke bread with uh, people educated as atheists, brought up as atheists in Eastern Europe, with Buddhists in East Asia, with the um, ritualistically religious in Central America. I can just tell you that all of these experiences are so enriching, so filling, so rewarding. Diversity honors God and it fills our hearts with understanding. You know, imagine a great painting. Imagine a beautiful painting. And imagine that people can come to that painting from different cultures and different languages from all over the world. And imagine we can even bring people back from time, from different ages, and have them see that painting in an art gallery. And imagine all of them looking at that painting and saying, wow, that's a really, that is a tremendous painting. That is beautiful. That connects to some universal truth. It's somehow inherently beautiful. What would you say about a painting like that? You say, well, that painting has something that is so beautiful, so worthy, so dignifying, that it transcends culture, time, and age. We would say that is an amazing painting because of its diverse praise. In the same way, the diversity of praise that the church brings to Jesus makes his worthiness all the more clear and seen. God is much bigger than we think. His heart is far more expansive than we think. If I were to sum up these two chapters in a little simple phrase, here it is. God loves the world, and so should we. God loves the world, and so should we. And as we grow, guess what? We're going to find Him bigger. Let me finish with this story. Alex Fabian, our student director, shared a a group with some of us on Monday night. It is from Prince Caspian. I'm going to again bring up C.S. Lewis. 
And if you're not familiar with the story, Aslan is a large, majestic, and powerful lion representing Jesus. Lucy is a little girl who's searching for Aslan and finally finds him after a long absence. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy, at last. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her. She gazed up into the large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you are older, little one, he answered. Lucy questioned back, not because you are? And Aslan responded, no, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. And that's our prayer for you. That you will find God's heart bigger and more expansive than you ever imagined it could be. Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for the power of your word and the strength of your word and how relevant it is to today. And I ask you to do a great work within the lives of our church, the heart of our church, that we will be ready to seek and to save that which was lost, crossing traditional boundaries to welcome anyone into the kingdom who places their faith in Jesus. Father, make us different. In Christ's name, amen.